This podcast is a part of the Carbon Almanac Network of Podcasts. What happens when regular people work together to create massive, meaningful change on a global scale? Welcome to the Carbon Almanac Collective, a podcast where the volunteers who created the Carbon Almanac share the insights and aha moments they had while collaborating on this landmark project to help fight the climate crisis. I'm your host, Jennifer Myers Chua, and it's not too late to join in on the conversation. My name is Mark Deutsch, and I'm based in Richmond, Virginia, in the United States. And I initially worked on a few contributions of content to the Almanac, and then I pivoted from there when that was completed and moved into more of a business outreach and marketing and helping to uh, increase awareness and manage that process. My name is Vivek Srinivasan. I'm from Bangalore, India, and I worked on uh, several articles for the project. I put together probably 20, 25 articles for the project. I'm Scott Hamilton. I live in Buffalo, New York, and I've been a contributor, an editor, and helped out in a number of areas of the Carbon Almanac. And why did you decide to join the project? For me, it's really been, I'm a very active Rotarian with an organization called Rotary International. So it's a, it's a large global service club and service organization. And Rotary adopted protecting the environment last year as one of seven areas of focus. And so through that work, I, I decided to take that on and learn more about how I can help Rotary and those types of projects. At the same time, my oldest son is studying sustainability in college. And so I, I took a deeper interest in the overall area because of that. And then through that process, took a deeper interest in, gosh, this is a huge, complex problem. We've got to solve it or we're going to be paying for it and our kids will be paying for it. So when when the, the message went out from Seth, who I've, I've been a fan of for many years, to his community saying we're looking for help with this particular area, I raised my hand and said, how can I help? And so it happened to coincide with both the, the, the love of a topic I'm learning more about and want to get more engaged with, as well as through my just personal relationships. So it's become really a, a personal passion that I'd like to, to focus more of my energy on. I, I accepted the invitation from Seth Godin and didn't know him, but just liked his work. And it looked like something I could do and should do at the time. So that's why I joined without really any other thought. Has there been anything that you've learned about climate or the climate crisis from working on this project that has just blown your mind? I think if I've learned one thing, it's really been the beauty of working in a leaderless organization and just how much you can accomplish when I think it was maybe a Hoover, one U.S. president said it, when you, you don't care about who gets credit, how much you can accomplish. And to me, that's been the one thing. It's like everyone is is self-effacing and interested in helping for this great mission. And as a result, no one's wrapped up in who's going to get credit and, and climbing any type of ladder. It's really doing something for the benefit of, of all humanity, frankly. So it's such a powerful mission. And I found people are not absorbed in, in getting recognition or, or climbing any type of corporate ladder. So it's been beautiful, I think, to see that happen. It's safe to say that I, I didn't know what I didn't know, which is the place most of us start learning about anything. 
I knew just enough to be dangerous, as many would say. In particular, I didn't know that recycling was an abject failure. And that was quite interesting to me, having participated in it for many years in various locales. There were a few other things. I didn't know that there were so many workable alternatives to what's out there right now. That's a critical one because many people do not know, even now, today, that some of the things that really were kind of pie in the sky only a few years ago and really were not viable, they're viable now. And we need to really look at them. And there's so much to be said about how interesting like innovative materials are, what scientists and thought leaders and creative types are coming up with. It's just fascinating. It is. I had the chance and it was sort of a self-challenge that Seth jumped in on when he posted a list of all of these petroleum products, products made from oil and gas. And I actually saw it and said, hey, wouldn't it be fun if we got together a small group and went out and actually found alternatives? Not knowing how hard that would be, what it would involve. But this list is amazing. And, and I took it on as another project. It's posted somewhere on the Almanac. But what it did for us is it allowed us to go out and actually learn what are those alternatives. And you know what? Many of them are not only extremely viable and fronted by very, very solid companies with great ideas, but they're also sensible. They're really sensible. And people should look at those. And I guess the only reason they haven't yet is marketing and probably money. So if we can give the marketing and the money, the funding to these companies and support them, I think people will be amazed at what they could do to replace some of those and many of those petroleum-based products. Some of the data that we came across was extraordinary. Many of the things that we take for granted or assume about how to solve climate change are also wrong, right? For example, uh, when we had this data on plastic recycling, it turned out that a very, very, very minuscule percentage of the plastic actually gets recycled. But we feel like we are doing something by putting it in the recycle bin. But in reality, that I mean, eventually it lands up in an ocean or landfill. A very small percentage of it actually gets recycled. Similarly, uh, I learned that while there is a lot of interest in planting trees, for example, and you know the Western world, so to say, the Europe and so on and so forth, is very interested in planting trees. Planting trees in Europe is not helping at all because you need trees or the dark part that will absorb the heat you don't need that close to the poles the worst thing that you can do is plant more trees close to the poles and make it hotter over there you actually need to do it around amazon and along the tropical belts which is where trees traditionally grow and and also the nativity of the trees right we want to plant trees so we just plant whatever tree comes to us rather than figure out hey what tree goes, grows in Norway, you know, what is native to this land. So we don't think about that. We just go about doing things in a very random manner, thinking that we are doing good for the environment, whereas we are probably doing something which is even worse. So there, there were lots of pieces of data like this that jumped out, which showed that the traditional approach, which would be considered effort from a climate change standpoint, ends up being disastrous. Because we are just not educated well enough about these things. Mark, I'd like to just piggyback off what Vivek said about recycling. And I'm just wondering, recycling keeps coming up in these conversations. With a child who's studying sustainability, are you having these conversations at home? Yeah, yeah, we are. And actually, you know, funny enough, Vivek, to your point, I was on a call yesterday with a project in southern India. They're planting mangroves. And one of the pieces of what they're doing is there's an economic 
part to it as well from a development perspective that they're collecting trash that and plastic bottles that come into the mangroves. And then they're building a micro recycling center in this area and they're converting the plastics, especially the really small pieces, you know, the microbes that are hard to capture, but they're building that into a model to do art from it. So they're taking the recycled plastic and they're making plates and, and different pieces of art that they can use locally and then people locally sell them. So they're, they're taking that and converting it into economic development because I, that's a lot of the conversation I tend to have is, is yeah, it's recycling is tough, right? I think the numbers are pretty astounding that we've discovered that so little is the sense since there's no market for it. So the, the primary market from the United States or the world, I think was China and China stopped accepting you know, recycled materials and, and paper is a big part of it too. Pulp products, plastic, all of that. So yeah, I, I talk to my son regularly and that that's really uh, opened my eyes and it's been fun. Well, of course, when he's learning these things in college and for me also to engage with some of his professors related to this project. So it really has created a nice dynamic, but it, it certainly has made me much more aware and much, much more well equipped to have conversations with other people about it as well. Because I, I'm one of my areas of interest is the economic development part of you know, how to make a, a business model out of it as well, because businesses, I think, have a huge impact or should on this, whereas governments often get paralyzed and unable to make decisions. I think businesses can make a big impact. So, yeah, it's been a, a great conversation with my son and just other peers to talk about a, a different perspective on it. It's, it's just not all about saving the environment, which is important. It can also be a good economic development tool and help raise people out of poverty as well if we do it right. Mm hmm. Vivek, what led you to decide to do this work? I've been generally interested in writing. I've been very interested in putting words together. And it's a topic that happens to interest me. So I was like, hey, multinational collaboration, great people to work with. This is going to be like a one other kind of opportunity. And why not just write some and contribute to it? Why not do that was the thought that uh, came about. I do want to ask you because... When we're talking about multinational environment that we're in here, Vivek, you've had to get up and have meetings with us in the middle of the night, your time. I was telling Mark earlier that I've had some pre-dawn meetings myself. I'd like to learn from you what your experience has been like working with people that are spanning 50 plus countries, all the time zones all over the world. What has that been like for you? I mean, the working itself has not been uh, very challenging. At the end, people are people are people, right? I was recently reading a book where he talks about how based on our neighborhoods, we tend to create divisions just to look at ourselves as separate parts. And that's how culture emerges. When you create that divisions constantly, You your culture evolves. Like that tends to happen, which is what is accepted in a culture versus what is not accepted in a culture starts to evolve as you grow up in a particular country you know this reinforcement that you know they are different and you are different and we are different people sort of gets reinforced through various channels and various ways and what this project showed me is we are not all that different right we are all very very similar in many many ways and we are all passionate about pretty similar things it's pretty similar things that makes us jump to action and do something about it so we are not all that dissimilar just because we speak a different tongue or just because we live in a different land or in a different time zone doesn't make us all that different. I mean, we are one at the end of the day I and mean, no matter what other planet we explore, this is the best planet to live on. 
yeah, I mean, while it's difficult to coordinate across time zones and all of that, people are very generous, right? People take that extra step. People go that extra distance to make it comfortable enough for you. Maybe I am up at 10 p.m., but somebody else is up at 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. So that's what uh, my experience has been. I agree with Vivek's comments as well, and I'll just kind of add to it. My perspective or appreciation has been increasing my appreciation for other cultures as well. For example, one of the areas I've been working lately with the project has been just the messaging for outreach to organizations to encourage them to help join us in this movement. I'll use one example that's kind of U.S.-based, and someone from India will say, well, you know, I have no idea what you're talking about. We don't have that reference. Here's what I'm talking about, so here's a reference. In Australia, here's a reference. And in Germany, here's a reference. So that's been really fascinating for me is is working with a diverse team of people, but also looking at their point of view a little differently. You know, you get some exposure to friends and people you have in other countries and business associates, but this context has been really different. So it's been eye-opening for me to increase my appreciation of really thinking about the other person's perspective as well. And, and also to Vivek's point, how generous this community has been has really been fascinating. Everyone is so willing to help each other. It, it's really the, the type of people you want to work with. You, you, get, you get excited to, to jump into to discourse and see what's happening and excited to thank people and appreciate people. And they do the same for you. It's just such a, a great vibe and such a great environment to work in. And when we think about that spirit of generosity, is there anyone that stands out in your mind that has been really just generous and really made an impact on your time here? For me, it's been a couple of people really jump out. I think Seth Godin, number one, I think his his ability to shepherd this team and work with this team has really been inspirational, I mm-hmm. think. And Anne-Marie as well has been great. She, she and I have been working pretty closely on the HubSpot project. So she's been great to work with as well. And she's I'm just amazed by she's kind of all over the place. I love when people have that ability to I know we're all busy and doing different things, but the time they take to take a breath and to help other people and and work at the the quality and level that they work at. So those two people in particular stand out to me. I don't even need to look at any notes to tell you that it's easy because in our ongoing discourse on discourse, uh, at the very beginning, when I had the guts, the temerity to say, maybe I should actually make a comment here amongst all these strangers, <laughs> I, I reached out. I, I made a comment about some in some thread, and immediately I was supported. I mean, within minutes mm-hmm. by a wonderful woman who's one of the deepest thinkers I've ever met named Lynn. And what that does is that encourages you. That led me to make some more comments, and soon a person named Michelle jumped in. And these people were all encouraging, saying, keep going, keep going. And I'll never be one who will stop talking if you give me a chance to talk or write. And so I continued. And over time, I worked on some major projects. Some of them were very quick, had to be done quickly, where I just said, yeah, I could do that. And I jumped in over some very late nights and very long weekends for projects for Leah, for Manon, And then uh, Barbara, all these people were just so kind, so supportive, and so encouraging that, you know, when you get that, you give it right back. And encouragement leads to engagement. And if you inspire enough through that engagement, it leads to action. And that I've seen that over and over during the Carbon Almanac's formation and now in its promotion. 
I worked on several of the charts and graphs with Jasper and many of us didn't even know D3 when we jumped into it and he was very patient. He taught us how to do it and we were able to deliver what had to be done. Andrea Morris, David and Boone and Felice, I think were very, very pivotal in putting the final draft of the design together, which becomes the final book. They put in like a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of coordination with all of the different people because again there were fact checking going on in the middle and you had people adding stuff editing stuff all of this had to be managed simultaneously uh, while actually flowing that content into the design I think they did phenomenal work. Paige has been doing incredible work with the kids section and Barbara also. I mean, several of them have been very, very uh, heavy duty workers. I, I don't even know whether they're doing anything else apart from this or not. They just seem to be everywhere. I would like to ask you both because Vivek, you're on the other side of the world and Mark, you're working directly in the business outreach I'm just wondering who, if you both had the opportunity to get this book into someone's hands, anyone's hands in the whole world, who would it be? Gosh, that, that, is, that is a tough question. Again, my, my, my primary point of view, I think, tends to be the power of the business community, I think, to help drive a lot of this change, because I, I don't have as much faith in a lot of our elected officials to do that. If there to be one one particular business person, I'd love to have lead that charge because they almost all seem to have things I don't appreciate as much about them, mm. too, I think. But I tend to think of someone like, like, like a Jeff Bezos, for example, someone who's leading in the right way, I think, largely with Amazon uh, and also is a person that people uh, listen to overall. I think he's got a, a good megaphone and also has I think he's got the the respect. I think, as being somebody who practices what he teaches. So if I had to pick one person, I'd probably go with Bezos, I think. Absolutely. The CEOs of the top companies and also the small to medium-sized enterprises that you might call number three with a bullet. It's a, it's a term from the vernacular meaning bullet, meaning back in the days of Billboard music charts, it was the song that was rising quickly because it was trending. It was the one that everybody could see was going to go. And yeah, usually they'd say number 10 with a bullet or number nine with a bullet because these were weekly charts. That's who I want to get to. The biggest companies, because they already should know and because they're already taking steps to their ESG, that's environment, social, and governance um, policies and practices. But even they need to be led, uh, have themselves be led, if you will. They'd like to be encouraged, guided. But the ones that are the next tier down, they're the growing companies of our future. They're going to have huge influence, not just on the world around them, but on their employees on their customers, on their upstream suppliers and their downstream customers. This is really where we need to get because that will then magnify because the people are super important, but people work for people. They work yeah. for organizations. And what better way to get to, you know, get them, get to both at one time through a united front to, to talk about climate and what it means. At the very beginning, I said, I want to be able to be that bridge that gets from talking about What's going on in climate? You know, because I had to learn like everybody else. And now what? And the now what part has been going on for a while. People don't realize it's been going on for quite a few years. If you're a company that focuses on these things, you know, if you made a decision, usually at the executive level or at the uh, maybe a, a board member made a decision, we got to look at this. We got to look at our environmental footprint. Fine. But that all the rules are changing every single day, literally every day. There are several reporting mechanisms. Nobody can really decide which one's most important. Some companies do both, three, whatever. 
you and I know that's not an ideal way for things to be. It really needs to be simpler. People need to see the path. And I want to help companies get along that path quickly and then make that path their own. So that's really what I would like to do. That's my passion. I love meeting all the people. And you know what's cool about sales, which I've been involved in my whole life? Sales is about walking around, and in this case, maybe getting online and talking to people, just talking to people and sharing. And that's what I want to do because this is probably the biggest and most important sharing I'm ever going to do is how we can save our planet for humans. The planet's going to be fine. The humans, not so much unless we make some some things happen. I'd put it in the hands of three people. I'd put it in the hands of the leadership of BlackRock, Vanguard, and Stateside. They control about $12 trillion in capital. They pretty much own the entire market in, in the United States. They control 25% of all of the S&P 500 companies in the United States. And uh, in addition to that, you, you might call it lobbying, but essentially all the public servants are in their hands one way or the other. So these are the people who are ultimately pulling the strings. And if they decide as index funds to not actively invest in one category of companies, you can imagine 25% of the capital just disappearing from that category of companies. You know, that's a huge hit for any organization to take on the market. So we're all kind of in agreement that we need people in organizations and people with financial power or people with political power to take action. But we've come together from all over the globe to mobilize together as regular people to create change. How effective do you think that has been that we are not necessarily in positions of power or financial power, but that we've all come together just as regular people and done what we can? Like, Do you have any comments on that experience? I think there is a possibility to create change when you have a lot of people understanding what is going on beneath the surface, when you understand that recycle bin is not the panacea, that's not solving anybody's problem. You're not even scratching the surface in terms of solving the problem. And when people start realizing that, that's when change occurs and you start realizing that, hey, what are we doing? I often think of 1960s, 1950s, a time of very positive thinking. I mean, like the wars had ended. People had a very, very positive outlook towards the world. And some of the greatest science fiction that we read today actually emerged during that time. And these were writers who were sitting and imagining a better world tomorrow. And that better world is what kids who were reading those books set out to create. And, you know, today, if you pick up science fiction, it's all doom and gloom. And I'm like, if we can't even spend our time thinking about a positive future, then what are we even doing? We need to start thinking as individuals, as people, as to what change we can affect. And when we start affecting the change, that can grow into a movement. Yeah, I agree. And I think someone in the community, I think it might have been Michelle Poor shared a great video this week. of, uh, And it was part of a TED talk of the, the dancing shirtless guy is the best way I can describe it. It is really cool because what it talks about is that there, there's this guy dancing at a, at a music festival and just he looks like he's crazy. And then all of a sudden, a second person joins him. And the conversation was, it's really the second person who's the leader. So as soon as that second person comes and starts to, to dance with the you know crazy guy, turns into a leader as a result of that second person. So I think a lot of what we're doing is creating a dialogue. So to me, it really starts with dialogue at a very local level with, with my friends, my family, 
my coworkers, other people that I can get into a conversation about this and then more importantly, take action. And that's really that second person. Now we start to take action and that I think then other businesses are going to be driven by the market. So if we can slowly move the market that way and take action on what we dialogue about, then I think we can make a huge difference. And as Vivek said, that's how all revolutions start really with that one spark. And so we can be that spark and have been that spark, I think. So when you engage several thousand people working on this to talk to their in 40 countries, right, to talk to their friends, family, associates, that starts to bubble up from a grassroots level. Then I think the businesses and the politicians and the people in power will start to take notice. That's what I think we're really we have the ability to do. And again, it starts with that dialogue conversation. Now we move to action and people start to see that. And all of a sudden you've got a significant movement on your hands. So it's facts, connection, action, right? And we've already discussed the connection. I would like to go a little bit more back into the facts, though, because Vivek, specifically, you wrote so many articles in the book. Is there one of those articles or is there a spread that is standing out in your mind as like the must reads? I just told Seth that we need to end the book on on a positive note. And so... The last page of the book is actually an article that I wrote and then Seth edited it. And it basically says when polio was first discovered, we didn't even know what it was. And we didn't know what we could do about it. The man who discovered polio probably had no clue what he could do for his patients. And then in the 1950s, we discovered a vaccine. And in the matter of the next 40 years, we made sure that polio was eradicated. And this was something that was done pre-internet, pre-mobile phone, pre-all of that, right? This was in, in the most rudimentary of communication, the most rudimentary manners we went about mobilizing people, mobilizing NGOs. Here in India, for example, we had something called the Pulse Polio Mission. And every woman in every village was mobilized to make sure that every kid got a polio vaccination. And ultimately, India eradicated polio in 2010. And today there are like 140 cases across the globe and there are probably a handful of countries that are not completely free of polio. In a similar way, if you look at Chicago, plumbing came in and changed the face of Chicago. Thousands and thousands of people used to perish to diseases like diarrhea in the United States. And then plumbing happened and it just, the city of Chicago was apparently raised by a few meters to enable plumbing under the city. And so these are all feats that we ourselves have accomplished for ourselves. And therefore, this is a problem understood, but there is a solution. There is action that we can take and it is in our our hands to take action. And that's what the article was about. It wasn't so much about just foisting facts. It was about real action that we can take. And that would be the page I would crack open for them. So 40 years, it took 40 years to eradicate polio. And if we're thinking about our impact that we can have on the climate emergency and where we're at now, do you think it's going to take 40 years for us to see some significant change if we can mobilize together? I think it it can't, right? I mean, we, we cannot wait that long. And I think that that's part of, and to answer the prior you know question, in terms of a specific page I would turn to, polio is something that's near and dear to my heart as well, as Vivek mentioned, that from, from being an active Rotarian, Rotary's been instrumental in driving a lot of the campaigns around the world. And that's been our primary mission to eliminate and eradicate polio. Part of what I'm, I'm interested in, I think, is, is helping people with the positive side, that individual people can make a difference. 
And I think that groundswell has got to happen because we just don't have the time to wait is what's really critical. And I think at the same time, we have to arm people with things that they can do as opposed to doom and gloom. And there is no way to solve this. We have no choice but to act. It's just how do we act and what can we do is what I think is critical. So I, I would look to lots of different passages that are in the book to point out, here's something you can do today. There are different things that we can do, but I want to inspire that action because we really have no choice. We have to make the change or it's going to be catastrophic. It's become clear to me through the Carbon Almanac, and I think Seth has said it more than once, don't worry about the planet. It's the humans we got to think about and the animals. In all of the different data points that you find when you start reading the Carbon Almanac, and I've read it cover to cover back and forth several times as I've had to edit a number of sections. I've actually also done one very cool thing that no one even knows about except for the people involved. I got to be involved, and in a pretty big way, I did many of the sketches and I also did the photos. I did a lot. I, I'm the guy who, who wrote all the captions for all the photos. I didn't make necessarily all of them up, but I put them in and then I put in the credits to make sure everyone got credits. That was a very specified format. So I did that. And then what that led to was we finalized it. It is what it is now. It's a beautiful PDF of photos. So I didn't take the photos, but I was the guy doing the grunt work behind the scenes to make sure that we did all everything right, if you will. Now, the point is, is I also got asked to do something as a result. This is after working on resources and other things. And this was something really cool. I got to do alternative text. And what alternative text is, is explaining what does that graph mean to someone who is sight impaired? They can't see it. So how do you describe it? What an interesting process about using different parts of your brain to describe a diagram on the page. And one of the most challenging ones was all of the um, IPCC outlooks. They have all these different scenarios, trying to describe a scenario with a bunch of different data points or arrows going every which way to somebody who can't see it and say, this is what this diagram is saying to you. So you literally are speaking to them through words, and hopefully they're using text-to-speech conversion or whatever, but you're speaking to them and saying, this is what I see and this is what you would see if you could see this diagram, this chart, this picture, this cartoon. The one big thing that came out of this beyond everything else was I'm a huge lover of the water. I've been a swimmer my whole life, whether that be competitive swimming for about 12, 15 years at a pretty high level to actually swimming in oceans, which I love to do wherever I go. And part of my joy is going in the water and really being one with the water. I'm completely at home in the water. I mean, I literally have zero fear. Sharks are there. I know that. Jellyfish. I just don't worry about it because not only have I been a lifeguard and swim instructor and everything, but I do feel completely at home. And generally, I think I'd be okay um, in the water. But I love fish. I love all the mammals and fish and other water life. And one of the things that really came out of Carbon Almanac for me was how clear and applicable the proverb, teach them how to fish, really comes here. And there's an ironic part of this. We're teaching people through the Carbon Almanac how to fish for themselves, how to figure out where they can go in their carbon journey, how they can change things in their community, how they can join with others to make a bigger impact, and how they can then actually work with all the big institutions in the world to demand change. Okay, That has to happen. And it would be better if everybody would just go along with it. But the fish are sitting there thinking, would you please learn how to fish? Because our lives depend on it. Our seas depend on it. Our future depends on it. That's the reality. We have a choice. 
We have options. And now with the Carbon Almanac, we have the facts to tell us where we can go, where we can connect, and how we can act. The other facts that are really important are that, again, the alternatives that are out there, when you look at, it's not just in the Carbon Almanac itself, but in the resources in our sources themselves, which we have posted online. I did a lot of work on those as well to make sure they were correct and, and to line them up and to make them relatively similar across different categories. But it really is true. People just don't know how many alternatives there really are. And they are out there and we need to find them and companies need to embrace them fund them and and get them into the pipeline now rather than wait another 10 years because we can't. Yeah. Vivek, is there anything that scares you about climate change action? There is a lot that scares me about climate change action. I think that, you know, the problem with the rich people is that they're all old. And by the time that the consequences of climate change really start hitting home, many of them are going to be six feet under the ground. So the incentive for them to do something about this at this present point in time is limited. And that's what scares me because however we cut it and slice it, these people have inordinate power over a lot of things. And the reason I keep bringing US up is because in many ways, a lot of the policy framework that eventually flows into the rest of the world depends on what U.S. decides to do. I was reading an article about how U.S. aid money that goes into Africa will not reach a recipient if they want to have an abortion, for example. right? And so this is a policy decision of the United States, which is affecting somebody who is living maybe 7,000 kilometers away. right? It should have no bearing on their life, but it does. So what happens is these things are very interconnected. Our lives are interconnected, right? The wind that blows in Sahara settles the dust in Amazon and that's how the Amazon forest grew. And the the thing that scares me is we have a tendency to be reductionist. We like to reduce things so that it's easy to understand. I was recently writing an article myself about the Mac index, right? The Big Mac index, which is used by The Economist and it's used as a comparison of purchasing power parity. And the one question that arrived to me was, let's say you have 10,000 stores in one country and two stores in another country. Do you really think the economics of these two are going to be the same? Is it even fair to use this as a purchasing power parity index? I mean, your economics there is going to be very different from out here. But it makes it very simple. It makes it insanely easy to understand what I'm talking about. But then when you go into the nuances, it's not really as simple as we are making it out to be. And so that is what makes me feel very banal about this thing because the media, the, the people with money try to reduce things to a manner which is very easy to understand. And it usually is not that simple. I read something the other day that stuck in my mind. And it was also about the supremely wealthy and why they may not be as worried about climate emergency as we are. They're just living in a completely different environment where they can, you know, hire private firefighters. Kim and Kanye have a private firefighter team to make sure the wildfires don't take down their home. And it just stuck in my head like, right, right. I didn't think about that. So it is kind of about mobilization of the masses, right? Like, it's all of us coming together that is going to make change. Mark, do you have anything to comment on that? 
when I talk with several friends and, and people that really are just like we're doom and gloom, we might as well not take action because we can't do anything. We don't have any power. We don't have the resources. We can't do anything. I'm always been very positive. And when you look at where the world has come just in the past 25 to 50 years alone, how many people are pulled out of poverty and how many how much access we have to better health care. So there's lots of positive things. But to me, it starts with the youth. I think the youth are going to have a lot of, of dependence on the younger people today to really take action. I'm in my 50s, so I, I can do my part. But I really think the the youth among us have the, the energy and the ability. You know, we were talking earlier about working in different time zones. I, I, I could do that when I was 20 years old, much harder now that I'm 50. But I put a lot of faith in the younger generation to really make change happen. To me, though, they've really got to get angry about it and, and start to drive change. I think we can't we've learned we can't sit back and wait for the people that are in power to make change because they have disincentives to make change. They have an incentive to keep things the way they are and continue that path. The younger people are the ones that really, to me, have the energy and passion and ability. But to me, they really have to get mad about this to really start to drive change. I think that's what's going to need to happen, I think. I'll tell you something about banking. One of the fascinating things about banking, especially, is banking is known for a bunch of big financial institutions that had dinosaur systems, what they call legacy systems. This is an area I work in a lot is on the industry discussing uh, innovations in the industry, fintechs and banks. And they had all these dinosaur systems. Well, when the pandemic hit, all of a sudden they could not rely on many of those systems. They had to, and this is not just the, the banks, it was their customers. So they had to do more. They had to say, remember, we told you about how you could get on digitally. We have all these systems. We have all five different ways you can sign on. Now is the time. There are no other options. So companies were forced, and you will hear this all the time. They have literally compressed into one or two years, what probably would have likely taken 12 to 15 years, literally that quickly. But what has that done for all of us? We all now see we have the chance, we have the choice to communicate. We can travel or we can travel via via the web or via online um, conversations like we're having. And again, I love travel because of the outreach to people, the cultural um, connections that we make. And that is a huge part of my life. I also, though, see the power of this online media. There are no more excuses. The pandemic kind of took away the excuses. We can meet. We can connect around these facts and we can get things done for our climate and we don't have to be in the same room to do it. I just wanted to add something to Mark said. There's a story from uh, the physics conference of Solway. It's a very, very famous picture where you have Marie Curie, Niels Bohr, Schrodinger, Einstein, all, all the like big names of physics met at the conference of Solway, I think in 1916 or 1920, I don't remember when. But at the time, Einstein was a big deal because he had already come up with the theory of relativity. And just before the conference, Max Planck and Niels Bohr had announced the quantum theory. And the quantum theory was completely contradicting the theory of relativity, right? I mean, this was about the big and that was about the small and it was in complete contradiction. And Einstein could not bear to see that his theory was being proven wrong at any scale. So every morning at breakfast, Einstein would come down with a thought experiment to prove quantum theory wrong. And he would sit Niels Bohr and Max Planck down and grill them for three hours, telling them how all their theory could be wrong. 
and apparently uh, Bohr, when he died, was working on one of the thought experiments that Einstein had given him. And they say science moves forward one funeral at a time. Because <laughs> once you have come up with a theory of yours, you just don't want to give it up. And I, I think, you know, when it comes to this change, it's the same thing, right? It, it will move forward one funeral at a time. I mean, you know, we are entrenched in what we do. Yeah, no, I agree. I had a, a conversation just uh, yesterday with a local Board of Supervisors member. We're looking to encourage in Henrico County, where I live in Virginia, we want to encourage stop using plastic bags for shopping. And, and just having the conversation that you know, this person's been in office for, for 20 years and won't, won't deviate from what they've always done. And it's just hard to get some of these people that have been in office forever to, to identify with that. Here in India, we ban plastic bags. And there's a new problem because they have this like thin cotton with which they make bags. And that's even worse for the environment than the plastic was. I yeah. mean, <laughs> that beat the law, but it's worse. Like, I mean, this thing is, you can't even throw this away. It doesn't, it, this thing also doesn't disintegrate. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. horrible. So everything that we di- try to do from the perspective of solving a problem creates a new problem for us to solve. Right. It's just interesting to see that, you know, some of these convenience traps that we've gotten into, we just have to introduce inconvenience in our lives. And I think at some point, it's about finding that balance between convenience and inconvenience, giving up the old ways of life, right? What we used to. Right. Well, I think it was also fascinating in the Almanac, a lot of the the conversations around the life cycle analysis, also understanding it and the complexities of like you just described, when you've got this this solution, it can cause this unintended consequence in many cases, but we've got to take a full look at the whole life cycle. And now we've got better tools than ever to be able to do that and look at it on a more global scale rather than just within our own neighborhood. How does it affect the entire planet? And, and again, I, I think that's what fortunately we're creating this movement where a lot of people are going to start to pay more attention to that and be equipped with a book to be able to have that information at their fingertips, I think is cool. And for it to be living, right? So I think there'll be other, lots of other assets and things we're creating to help educate kids with the kids program we talked about earlier. So that that's great. That's where it's got to start. Let's educate our, really our youngest, youngest citizens, how they can make a difference. And then on up to the the older people. So again, hopefully we don't have to wait for us to die off. We can still make a change <laughs> even as the older population. But I do like that. We are looking at it very holistically, which is cool. So we've talked a lot about the old and we've talked about the young and we've talked about hope and we've talked about mobilization. But Vivek, if you're going to take one thing from this project into the rest of your life, what would it be? I think the people I worked with, I think uh, it's been a pleasure working with the people that I worked with. I think that is what I will take for the rest of my life. There were many things that I myself did not know about climate change. I did not know about many of the dynamics at play over there. It made a difference in terms of learning many of those things, coming to know what it is and what are the actions that we can take to make a change. At a community level, at local level, you try to do as many things as possible. You try to see what you can change in the way you yourself are doing things at home. So you've got to make your choices. And so I think from that perspective, you have to learn to forego inconvenience. In many aspects, I am starting to do that. And Mark, how about you? You know, I, I, I agree. I think it's really the power of the human spirit to affect change. I think it's kind of what I really took from this group of people. And it's a very diverse group. 
ge- geographically, perspective, politically. It's just a very diverse group of people from all over the place, which has been cool. But I think we all want the same thing down the road. We may have different ways of getting there, I think. But it's, it's just a diverse group of people all focused on solving the same problem. I won't remember all the facts. That's why we have an almanac. So I, I, can, I can look them up. But I'll, I'll remember some of those, but I will remember this conversation. So I think it's just a, a cool community of people, but the, the power of that group to impact change has been very important to me. I can and have to do more. And, that, and, and, and the emphasis on the can. Let's just say we all knew we had to do more about climate change, whatever more means. Okay? That's going to hit a lot of people a lot of different ways. Um, somebody else will do it. Government's responsible for doing it, or that company better do it first, and then maybe I'll think about doing it. But really, it's down to the can. What can I do? And if there's one thing that the Carbon Almanac should have taught anybody involved with it, is that we can all do much more than we do. I'm talking those late nights when you're up writing a story or editing a story that needs to get fixed, that isn't quite right. You can do that. And when you do it, you realize I did do that. And not only that, I enjoyed it and I can do more. Give me something else to do. That is what's amazing about this world. The more I've piled on, the more I've been able to do. And it's because of that knowledge that I'm in it. To, we're in it together. We're attacking this together. We're tackling it together to use a more positive term. And now we're going to find solutions together. And we're going to, we're going to actually act to make those solutions a reality. You can do it and you must do it. Not not someone else is going to do it. You can and you must. Even regular people, right? Uh, even And, you know, even more regular people because regular people work for companies. Regular people live in communities. Regular people do things that are either good, bad, or not so good. I call it good, better, best for the environment. And, you know, you can start with the good. Great place to start. You do a few good things for the environment. Next, you can move to the better. And then finally, you can be the best. You can be a shining beacon to all those around you. You can be that template that people say, look at what that person's doing. They are a perfect template for what we could do in our family, in our community, in our city, our state, our government. Come meet us where you are. And that is critical. People could come in where they are. They can help where they can help most. And you know what we're all finding? We can help in other ways. You've been listening to the Carbon Almanac Collective. This podcast is part of the Carbon Almanac Podcast Network. For more information, to join the movement, and to order your copy of the Carbon Almanac, go to thecarbonalmanac.org. Subscribe and join us next time to get more insights from regular people mobilizing to help the world fight the climate emergency.